Blog Talk Radio. Oh 
evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Battle Road Radio. I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that we could be here with you tonight. I'm glad that you guys are listening. I hope that uh, all of the folks uh, that are listening tonight and the folks that will listen in the uh, upcoming into the the archives of the show <clears throat> are going to get uh, uh, at least a little bit of information out of tonight's show. We're going to be talking about situational awareness uh, tonight. And uh, a lot of people, you'll hear about situational uh, awareness uh, quite often in in all different frames of uh, uh, all different places that uh, people are talking about self-defense and safety practices. But uh, I was talking with our, our guest who's going to be on in just a moment uh, earlier, and we were talking about how while most people will tell you to uh, that you need to make sure that you're paying attention to situational awareness and practicing good situational awareness, a lot of times they don't go into what that is. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that Tonight, I hope everybody's enjoying the uh, the ice and the snow uh, and everything else uh, all across the nation. We're we're getting uh, we've been getting a really cold and wet uh, February and beginning of March uh, this year. It's really uh, it's really probably one of the coldest and wettest ones that we've had in quite a while. I, I know that. Uh, there have been quite a few times when, by the end of February, we're already in the high 90s. Um, and we get very little uh, in the way of seasons here. Uh, we usually go straight from uh, very cold to very hot, uh, usually like in the space of a week. But this has been, a, has been, I guess, about three or four weeks of really cold weather and very wet weather at the same time. And uh, that makes for a rough combination, especially if you're, uh, you know, working uh, or if you're out of doors in it, it's rough because, you know, with the two elements combined, the, the cold and the wet, uh, it can give you a, uh, it can give you a rough time. You can always bundle up to, to stay a bit warm, <clears throat> but when you start getting that rain, it manages to seep in everywhere, and then, uh, and once you're wet, cold, it's just a, uh, it's just a bone chilling uh, type of feeling being cold and wet. And uh, I was telling uh, someone last night I was talking to that I'm, I was almost ready to say I would be glad when we finally get some warm weather, but I know that the minute that I say that. We'll end up with uh, 108 degrees uh, every single day for 200 days, and I'll be looking back on this uh, this cold, wet, uh, 38 degree temperature, uh, you know, with with a certain amount of longing. So, I guess uh, I guess we'll just have to wade through it. I know that. Uh, they're getting close to a record, I believe, in places like Boston for the amount of snow that they've had. I think close to nine feet. 
Uh, on the way home tonight, I was listening to the folks in Kentucky saying that they had gotten a, a solid 24 inches of snow, I guess, in the last 24 hours. And, uh, you know, places like, places like Boston, even though they get a lot of snow, they're geared up to deal with it. So they're geared up to deal with the the snow. They, the the municipalities all keep, you know, they all have the equipment. They have the, the snow plows and the and the, the road salt and all of the gear and stuff to to deal with it. So, uh, so you know, every morning at uh, five o'clock, you can get those plows clanging along the road. They're clearing the roads, putting up salt, stuff like that. But places like here in Texas and uh, and Kentucky and uh, Alabama, Louisiana, stuff like that, we don't get that. Uh, so. So when we get ice and snow, uh, it's it's rough to deal with. And I know a lot of people say, "Hey, I I grew up, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a cold climate, and I know how to drive on ice." But listen, nobody really knows how to drive on ice good. People know how to drive on ice that's been salted or gravelled. Nobody knows how to drive on black ice. There's no way to drive on black ice. So. <clears throat> It is uh, it's certainly exciting here the last uh, couple of weeks because here in uh, Texas, you know, when we get uh, weather, we don't uh, uh, we don't nobody does anything until there's a whole bunch of uh, uh, until there's a whole bunch of crashes and stuff like that. And they go, okay, yeah, I, I guess it is serious. I guess that. Uh, Guess we better do something. Let's get uh, let's go get some gravel and sling it out, stuff like that. <clears throat> but until something happens, we don't do anything. So I know I was driving to work, uh, I guess a week or so ago when, it, when when we had a heavy snow, and uh, there were a couple of times when uh, the car just uh, there was it wasn't anything real rapid. It wasn't like oh my gosh, here I go. Uh, it was. It's a very slow, lazy kind of pirouette that uh, <clears throat> the car just uh, stopped going in a uh, in a linear type of travel and just very slowly started uh, uh, tilting to the left. I'm not mind you, I'm still I'm still going down the highway at 60, but I'm just no longer going in a straight line. I'm in a four wheel drift kind of thing, and. Uh, then it slowly went back to the right, and and luckily there's nobody else on the highway. But I was on a bridge, and uh, and uh, just through the, by the grace of God, I kept uh, I kept centered, and uh, and finally uh, straightened back up, very slowly straightened back up, continued on at a much slower speed, because at, until that point I didn't realize that there was ice on the road. And there wasn't much ice on the road. It was mainly just on the bridges. But uh, but we're certainly getting a lot now. And uh, and so is everybody else. I see uh, uh, Unbarred Liberty in the chat room is saying that uh, they really hate this global warming. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm telling you, the global warming is terrible uh, here in Texas. Now, we're supposed to be getting, uh, I guess, some let up pretty soon. 
And I uh, I was hoping uh, we've got the uh, upcoming uh, uh, April 11th, 2015. We've got the upcoming uh, uh, running gun uh, zombie biathlon. And uh, that'll be here at our uh, Central Texas facilities for Battle Road USA. The four and a half mile looping trail with eight shooting stations along the trail and then obstacles between the stations. And one of the obstacles that I've created is a zip line across a stock tank. And uh, I thought that by now it would have warmed up enough that I could wade out into the stock tank to make sure, you know, I'm going to have to do it sooner or later, make sure that there are no uh, submerged logs or anything like that where people would have fall off the trolley that, uh, it was laying on a log or something, so I've got to walk that and make sure it's clear. But I thought it would be warm enough that I could slip on some, uh, uh, you know, my uh, half wetsuit and go through it. But good grief. Uh, the last time I tried it, it started snowing. So I guess that's going to have to wait another week or two. Uh, but I want to let folks know that that is uh, – that is coming up April 11th, and then uh, uh, I'll go through some of the more of the classes and stuff at the end of the show. I want to hurry up and, uh, and get started because we've got a lot of, of information to cover. So let me get uh, right into this uh, tonight. Like I said, we're going to be talking about situational awareness. I mean, uh, we've got our good friend and my very good friend uh, Richard Smith. He's a head of RAF shooting, a world traveling pilot. And just a uh, an extremely razor individual, and he's going to be speaking with us tonight about the elements that make up situational awareness and uh, what we can do to try and incorporate those elements uh, into our daily lives. Hey, Rick, how are you doing? Doing well. Just glad to be stranded at home and not stranded in Boston. <laughs> Yeah, when I was talking to the folks earlier, when I was talking to you guys about ice in Boston and stuff, uh, Rick is now flying out of uh, Boston, so he gets to enjoy the, uh, the messiness uh, on a regular basis there now. But you're not much safer at home because uh, when I talked to you this morning, you said you guys uh, were already getting those uh, ice stalagmites and stalactites uh, there in your yard, right? Oh, yeah. We're completely iced in. I can't I can't leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> Everything has a sheet of ice on it, so I think I saw uh, two trucks attempt to go down the road today in front of me, and they were kind of slipping and sliding. So I'll just stay here in the house where it's nice and warm. How long did uh, uh, do they have it forecast for it to be uh, icy? Well, the sun's supposed to be out in the morning, and it's going to get above freezing. So hopefully, okay, by midday so tomorrow, up there. you know, the roads will be clear. Well, I don't know if you, I'm sure you probably heard that uh, uh, on the way home tonight I was listening to the radio and the, the big news uh, there was that the that Kentucky uh, had gotten two feet of snow. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, have you yeah, got that worked out for the? Uh, have you got that sort of thing worked out for the um, for the uh, zombie apocalypse biathlon? Because I really like uh, not, two feet of snow. That'd be perfect. <laughs> not for 
not for snow or ice. Uh, <laughs> no, we got it. Uh, we got mud, rain baby, just plans. Mud. Yep. <laughs> there you yep, go. We got rain plans for the mud, but that's about <laughs> it. And uh, you know, I was I I think I talked to the folks uh, uh, a few days ago about that. I mean, a few weeks ago in one of the shows about that is that. Uh, I tell folks that no matter whether it's uh, rain, uh, snow, mud, dirt, whatever, it doesn't matter. That uh, I always make sure that I've got a uh, muzzle cover for my rifle because uh, last at the uh, at the last event it was raining and it got really muddy and uh, I saw several people. Uh, I actually witnessed them stick their muzzles in the mud. And, nice. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, oh, hey, guys. I said, you know, you just stuck your muzzle there in the mud. Do you think you might have gotten a, uh, you know, a blockage? And uh, <laughs> I safely turned it up to, to look into it without looking directly into it. And sure enough, you know, it was just filled with mud. And... Uh, I've got a uh, uh, fiberglass rod, uh, like a, a 21 uh, uh, caliber fiberglass rod, and uh, cleaned out the the barrel for the couple of folks. But uh, I'm sure there were plenty of folks I didn't see doing it. And you know, probably uh, probably 99 times out of 100, uh, with that small amount of mud, you can go ahead and shoot through it, and it won't do anything. But Man, you don't want to be on that uh, that one hundredth out of uh, out of there because that gets exactly. nasty. Yeah, yeah. This this weather is what I I call um I call prepper winter. It's a prepper winter because there's a lot of people out there suddenly discovering that they're not prepared and thinking maybe they should do some stuff to prepare for the next one. So yeah, weren't you telling me about uh, about your experiences with uh, with it with South Carolina? You said that uh, whenever the announcement came on for uh, snow or something, that uh, that the store shelves would be bare. Oh yeah. <laughs> Even though I'm sure in South Carolina you're not going to get more than an inch or two, right? That's about right. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> not even that. But it didn't matter. And even that's enough to uh, clear the shelves, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's. Uh, uh, Let's go ahead and get started with uh, our discussion. Okay. And uh, I, I'm sure you probably heard me too uh, talking uh, at the beginning of the show about what you and I had both discussed previously about this, and that right. is that uh, in a lot of uh, I, a lot of courses you go to, or there, or just discussions, you'll have uh, instructors or, or just or just folks saying, "Look, you really have to." Uh, you have to maintain your situational awareness, uh, you know, on a daily basis, and uh, and and they'll they'll sometimes talk about uh, color codes or or uh, or the OODA loop or something like that. Uh, and most times they, they, I guess, they are expecting you to know what they're talking about, or they just uh, or they don't cover it and. That's a problem because right. just saying uh, paying attention to your to your situational awareness is situational awareness is good, 
if the person has a grasp of what that is, but most people don't. They just say, okay, right. uh, I'm going to make sure that I'm looking around and, you know, and seeing what's, what's around me. Just like in the, uh, like in your shooting uh, uh, evolutions, your shooting procedures where you, where you'll fire and then you'll scan. Uh, but there's a lot more to it than that. So uh, why don't you get us started on on understanding uh, what some of the basic elements of situational situational awareness are. Okay, well, like you said, most courses, and, and mine included, and, and I probably cover in a one-day pistol course, a uh, concealed carry course, that sort of thing, probably half the day is talking about ways to not get into a situation where you may have to use your pistol. And um, we, we definitely want to avoid that kind of thing, if at all possible. Of course, I mean, let's face it, people pay good money to come out and learn how to shoot a gun. And so that's what we, you know, that's the fun part. That's what everybody concentrates on. But basically, we just give them an admonition to be careful out there, you know. And that's always kind of bothered me, and I'm looking for a solution to that. And in uh, in my studies, different reading different books and and seeing what other people teach and how they teach it. I've run across a couple of good books, and um, most of what we'll be discussing tonight comes from a book uh, called Left of Bang uh, by Patrick Van Horn and Jason Riley. And what they have done is come up with a systematic approach to learning how to maintain situational awareness and how to not get into a situation where you're going to have to defend yourself. And if you do get into that sort of situation, how to make a decision quickly and, and make a good decision. Um, the reason it's called left of bang is because if you can think of a, a timeline uh, running left to right, just a straight line, and somewhere along that line, something happens, a violent encounter, uh, a gunshots, something like that. And if you put an X on that line and that X becomes bang, that's where things went bang. Everything to the left of that is leading up to bang. Everything to the right of that is after bang. And so left right. of bang is where we want to be. And that's where we want to operate. We want to see what's going on before bang and possibly avoid bang. Um, so that's, you know, the way the, the book got its title. Um, this comes directly from um, the United States Marine Corps Combat Hunter course, but it's very adaptable to us in the civilian world as well. And uh, some of the things are directly adaptable, and some of the things you got to kind of twist around a little bit to make them work. Because I mean, let's face it, uh, we can't go to work with a M16 over our shoulder, and and uh, we can't walk into Walmart with our guns drawn. So we have to treat things a little bit differently. But one of the biggest things that it it works toward is being able to see what's going on, make a decision about what's going on, and and put it into into action. Um, the phrase that you've probably heard before, paralysis by analysis. Um, right. People taking in so much information to try to come to a decision and never really reaching that decision because they're always wanting just a little more information. Well, what we're going to try to talk about tonight is a way that you can teach yourself a systematic approach 
to processing information, making a decision, and making a good decision quickly. Um, this requires a certain mindset. If you strap on a pistol uh, and you carry a concealed weapon or an open weapon, you have to have a certain mindset before you do that. Um, I tell my students that every morning when you get up and you strap the pistol on, you say out loud to yourself, I may have to use this to defend myself or someone else today because it puts that idea into your head and it makes it real. Well, what, what we're trying to do now is come up with a mindset uh, that will enhance our situational awareness. And we're not talking about paranoia. Uh, we're talking about just being aware of what's going on around you. So this mindset is going to uh, require different skills. And the skills we're going to uh, want to develop are situational awareness. And when we talk about a situational awareness, we're talking about not just people but the environment around you. We're also going to want to develop a, uh, a sensitivity to baselines and anomalies. And we're going to talk a lot more about that in a few minutes. In other words, what cues out there are important to you. Another thing we're going to want to talk about is critical thinking, because it would be really nice to be able to uh, make a quick decision and a good decision, and that's going to require some critical thinking based on the information that we gather in our, in, in our normal situational awareness. And then last is going to be decision-making. And that's going to be with reference to having very little time to make that decision. Because if you think about it, in a lot of cases, you've got literally split seconds to figure right. out something's wrong and act on that, whatever whatever that act may be. Right. You've got so, to, and I tell people all the time, that you've got to you've got to work a lot of this stuff out beforehand because, like you said, yes. uh, you're only going to have, uh, in some cases, a few very precious seconds, and those can't be used uh, to do a great deal of analysis or a great deal of planning on what you're going to do. Or right. you can't. You just, you just can't. That, so you have already to have already done. worked out some, uh, some of the basic things that you're going to do and then, of course, with what we're discussing tonight is giving yourself that that extra, uh, that a little bit of cushioning by seeing what may be coming towards you rather than than just having the great and powerful Oz unveiling it when it's standing there in your face. So, Right. Time is distance. Distance is always good. Right. So what, what we're going to start with, we'll start with baselines and talk about what we're talking about uh, uh, when we're talking about a baseline. What are we talking about, actually? In any situation, wherever you are, there's a baseline. There's a baseline of everything. There's a baseline of noise, a baseline of activity, a baseline of, of, of uh, you know, anything that you can possibly imagine. And depending on where you are, that baseline establishes what is normal. So if you'll just use the who, what, when, where, why, and how uh theory, right? And that's how we do most things. We look at who, what, right. when, where, why, and how. So in looking around you, there's a there's a baseline about who should be there and who shouldn't, right? So you're sort of asking yourself the question, who should be here and isn't here? Or conversely, who shouldn't be here and is here? You could right. use the what. Right. You could say what, what should be here and isn't here 
and conversely, what shouldn't be here and is here. That kind of thing. An anomaly. Right. Right. If you're, uh, if you and your family, uh, if there's five of you and, uh, and you're all at home, uh, in your living room and, uh, and a vehicle is driving up or there's a knock on the door, uh, then you know who it isn't. Uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, you're, you're established at least a certain type of baseline for that. So right. uh, you know who you know who should be in your house and who shouldn't. And you also know there's also a time a timeline involved too, right? Uh, there's a knock at the door and it's eleven o'clock at night. Well, are things occurring when they should be occurring? Should somebody be knocking at your door at eleven o'clock at night? You know, versus you know four o'clock in the afternoon. There's, there's, right. there's you're a little more alert at eleven o'clock at night than you are at four. Um, also, you know, looking for where things are and where they are not, that kind of thing. And all this stuff is intrinsic. This is all stuff that you know in, just intrinsically, just from being a, a, a grown human being. You've, you've sort of picked this stuff up as you, as you grew up. So it's an intrinsic thing. But what we're going to do tonight is look at it in detail and, and quantify these things, and it'll start making more sense. In fact, uh, I would encourage people to take notes. Because this is the kind of stuff that you hear at one time, and it's like, oh, that's cool. And three days from now, you won't remember. But if you three days from now, if you let it kind of settle and percolate, and then go back and read your notes again, it makes a lot more sense, and it sticks with you. Um, I've had to read the book a couple of three times to make it really start to sink in. But anyway, right. uh, uh, that, we're talking about a, a best thing to do. Exactly. Yeah, you, you have to make it. You have to make it sink in because it's got to be an automatic thing. But when, when we're talking about a baseline, think of a baseline as it, remember we talked about the horizontal line a while ago. If you just draw a line across a piece of paper horizontally, and you call that your baseline, and then any kind of activity or lack of activity or noise or anything that goes on along that line will, will vary just a little bit above and below that line. But anything that deviates above or below that line by a significant amount should get your attention. And that's what we mean by uh, a baseline. These these little uh, dips and rises that go above that baseline are what we're going to call anomalies. Things that should should be there and aren't, or shouldn't be there and are, or things that are happening that shouldn't be happening, and that kind of thing. Those are the anomalies that we're talking about. And there's always going to be little small rises and dips that go just above and below the line, but the, the spikes are what we're interested in. Things that all of a sudden go well above or well below what is normal. For instance, um, if you're in an airport and you're just sitting at the gate waiting like you do a lot, um, you look around and there's a lot of people and there's a lot of movement and it's all random. And there's some people have bags with them and some people don't have bags with them. But bags belong with people. So if you look across the way and there's a bag, over there all by itself, and it's been there for a while, and it's completely unattended, that bag becomes an anomaly because your baseline is lots of people, some with bags, but never is there a bag with no person. So right. the bag without a person is an anomaly, and that should stick out in your mind. That's a threat. Let's do the same thing with a mall. You're at the mall. It's summertime. You're dressed lightly. There's lots of people, lots of random movement, lots of noise, and 
none of them have bags. So suddenly somebody with a bag would really stand out. That bag would become an anomaly. Or everybody's dressed in summer clothes, and there's somebody you know, in the food court with a, a trench coat and a backpack. That would be big anomaly to me. That would be big warning flags because it's so <laughs> far outside the baseline. So that's what we're talking about when we say baselines and anomalies. And throughout the rest of the, the evening, we're going to talk in terms of baselines and anomalies and how to establish a, a baseline and how to detect these anomalies. Next, we'll talk about um, human traits. And this is, again, is more stuff that you've, you should just know intrinsically. Uh, but one of the biggest things that we can bank on is uh, what psychologists call honest signals. And an honest signal is uh, a universal autonomic or biological signal. In other words, it's something that you can't control. Um, you know, when somebody surprises you, you jump or your eyes go wide. You can't control that. It's, it's an autonomic response. It's an autonomic uh, response to some sort of stress. But you can use these honest, honest signals and these autonomic responses to understand what people are doing and why and whether or not it, it uh, is a threat to you. For instance, people always telegraph their intentions, unless you're a world-class poker player. Uh, some of those guys, they're pretty good about uh, hiding their honest signals. But people telegraph their intentions. People also follow habitual patterns. And here's the big one. People are not good at multitasking. You may think you are, but you're not. Anytime you try to do two things at once, uh, you'll do one poorly or both poorly. And anytime there's conflicting commands, say, from your brain to your body, <clears throat> it's going to interfere with your ability to act smoothly. So your your movements will be a little jerky and you know, a little bit unnatural looking. So that's a big clue to you. If you see someone who's who's not acting correctly, then they're – that's an autonomic response, an uncontrollable response, an emotional response to some sort of stress. And it's up to you to figure out what it is and why. <clears throat> the way we're going to do it is we're going to divide human behavior into six domains. And this is the one. If you're taking notes, this is the one. Um, in observing human behavior, there are six domains. And the ones we're going to talk about are kinesics, that's K-I-N-E-S-I-C-S, -E kinesics, in other words, movement, biometric cues, proxemics, geographics, iconography, as in icons, and atmospherics. And we're going to break each one of those down and talk about them in detail. And uh, it'll give you a better idea of how to observe human behavior to figure out whether there is a threat or not. <clears throat> And the first one we'll talk about is uh, kinesics. Kinesics is just movement. It's just body language. It can be conscious body language. It can be unconscious body language. It can be postures, facial expressions, anything like that. But if you think about it, and, and I've read a couple of different numbers, but somewhere between 60 and 80% of all human communication is nonverbal. So you think about that. Yeah, so somewhere between 20 absolutely. and 40 of, of our communication is verbal. The rest of it is you, you know 
what someone's thinking or what they're going to do or that kind of thing, just basically on, on, on the way they move, the way they stand, the way they walk, things like that. So yeah, that's going to be one of our biggest indicators. That's where we, I mean, that's how we, uh, that's just how we evolved. I mean, before, uh, before men could speak, they still had to communicate. Animals have to communicate. Everybody does it uh, through nonverbal. I mean, animals make sounds and stuff, but the but the most important aspect of communication is always nonverbal. There's a great book on that by uh, Desmond Morris called Man Watching, and uh, it really uh, covers in depth uh, nonverbal communications and uh, different indicators and stuff like that. The way that uh, you know, the way that uh, like a dog uh, communicates uh, uh, submissiveness by going on its back and exposing the, the tender skin on its stomach. Uh, you know, when humans, when when humans, like if I make a pleading gesture toward you, I usually turn my hands uh, to palm up and I expose the veins uh, in my arms. Uh, you know, stuff like mm-hmm. that, or. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. So all of our, I mean, the majority of the stuff, even if you don't intend to, you're still giving nonverbal communication. Sure. Yeah, a child a child doesn't even have to be old enough to, to, to go to school or to read, but he knows if a dog bears his teeth that that's a bad thing, that's a threat. That's just the right. intrinsic thing that we know. But the, the human animal is a little bit different in that he can – he can try to hide those indications. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we go along too, about acting naturally and acting unnaturally and that kind of thing. Um, but we can, we can use these kinesics, these, this study of, of movement, human movement, uh, two different ways. The first way is we can, we can use movement to identify who doesn't fit in. And the second is we can use it to predict their behavior. If you think about it, I was watching something today where uh, one of the victims of the bombing in Boston uh, at the marathon saying that he remembered just before the bomb went off seeing this guy walking through the crowd, and he just didn't fit in. That's the exact words he used. He just didn't fit in. Everybody else was happy, and he was all serious. Everybody else was dressed lightly, and he was dressed in, in black and had a backpack. He just didn't fit in. And he, he moved with a purpose. He wasn't just standing and watching and, or moving at random. So he just didn't fit in. And it was based on the way the guy moved. Uh, did he listen to his inner voice <laughs> at that time? Probably uh-huh. not. Or, or maybe it was too late by then. But could he not have used that, that movement to predict a behavior that, uh-oh, there's a threat? You know, there's there's some threatening behavior. So we can use movement to identify who does not fit and to also predict behavior. And the thing to remember here is the actual movement, the actual gestures, the actual um, facial expressions, anything like that, aren't important. The actual gesture itself is not important. What's important is does it fit the baseline? Everything has to come back to the baseline. And in this case, this particular guy did not fit the baseline. So there was a, a good opportunity there to predict some, some behavior. So remember, the gestures are not important. They have to be, com- 
unless they're compared to um, the baseline. Do they stay within the baseline? The other thing is you can't rely on a single action or a single movement. What you're looking for is clusters. So a single action may not be enough. Now, the other thing we always teach, and I know you do this too, is you watch hands. These guys are big proponents of watching. You you watch the face, but you typically – Make your you look for clusters below the shoulders, is the way they say it. Why? Well, facial expressions are are they're not very reliable. In other words, a world class poker player can probably. The other thing is some of them happen so rapidly that you may miss it unless you're looking right at the guy's face. Some facial expressions only last one twenty fifth of a second. If you're not looking yeah, right like at the guy's blink, face, like an eye blink, you're. you're yeah, sure, you're going to miss it. And the other thing is, you think about it, facial expressions require you to be close enough to see the facial expression. And wouldn't right. it be nice to pick up on these autonomic responses and these movements when you've got some distance between you and the threat? So we'd rather we'd rather pick up on those than, than facial uh, expressions. Right, right. And like you were saying earlier is that, uh, that facial expressions can – uh, and quite often are, can be uh, controlled. You can teach yourself to control it. But as you also said earlier, that uh, humans aren't that great at multitasking. I mean, we can do three things. You know, we can walk and do gum and stuff like that. But we're not that great at it. So if we if we are uh, focusing uh, our skills on making sure that our face looks absolutely normal, smiling face, stuff like that, that still leaves the rest of your body open to kind of do what what it is really thinking about and what it's really feeling. So the uh, the the body indications and nonverbal communications may be uh may be very very easily giving themselves away while you're looking at the face. The face has a pleasant smile, but the hands are clenched or the fingers are twitching or the uh or their body's closed off, stuff like that. So uh Yeah. If I yeah, if I may quote the like OJ the, they smiling yeah, well, in your face and all the time they want to take your place. If I may quote them. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and like you said, the the facial I've seen and you I'm sure you you've seen it, everybody's seen everybody's seen where uh, they're you're at a party or 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 wherever, you're shopping, whatever and you Either you do something by accident or something. Anyway, the person that you're interacting with gets really mad, and for a split, for a fraction of a second, you see can see the anger on their face, and then it vanishes because they're overriding it with a "I'm going to be cheerful uh, despite this" command. Right. And so they've got they put the smile back on. That doesn't mean they're not still angry. It just means they've overridden what that display was going to be. And uh, they now have a smile. So, right. Yeah, so yeah, the the facial expressions are are the least uh, the least trustworthy. Yep. The, the other thing is, keep in mind that of the I don't know thousands of gestures that that a human can make, a lot of them have very similar or opposite meanings. You you, you you're typically pretty good at at reading those gestures and understanding what they mean. But a lot of times they could have the opposite meaning from, from what you think. For instance, if somebody crosses their arms over their chest, what does that mean? Well, 
psychologists will tell you that uh, they're closing themselves off, right? They're shutting themselves off. They're uncomfortable. They're seeking to protect themselves. It, that's what they'll tell you. Well, that's true, but it also may mean they're cold. You know, it could be just something as simple as that. Or how many times have you been around friends and you stood there and crossed your arms over your chest because you felt comfortable? So in, in that case, crossing your arms over your chest it has any number of meanings. That's why we go right back to clusters again. You can't read that single action. You can't read anything into that single action. You have to have clusters. Um, yeah, and they, there and are they, three the clusters will show up. I mean, if you like you said, if you just if you pay at least a, a, a mild amount of attention, you'll be able to to connect these, especially after the discussion that. We're having tonight uh, because uh, the stuff that Rick is bringing up is going to help you to identify the clusters. Exactly. Now, the, the, there are three main clusters that we're we're looking for, and we're going to talk about each one of the three. And we're going to break them down, but here's what they are to begin with. The three clusters that you're looking for: number one is dominant versus submissive. Is the person dominant, or are they submissive? The second is uncomfortable versus comfortable. In that particular situation, is that person comfortable or are they uncomfortable? The third is interested versus uninterested in that situation. So we'll break each one of those down. Again, you take these clusters and you go right back to the baseline. Should that person be dominant in this position or submissive in this position? Should this person be comfortable or uncomfortable in this position? Uh, should they be interested or uninterested in what's going on in this situation? So you still got to go back to the baseline. If most of the people there are are not dominant and, and this one person stands out as dominant, then that is a spike above the baseline, and it should catch your interest. If you're looking across a, a crowded room and everybody fits the baseline, then each individual that you see, is you can just kind of move on, right? You don't have to spend any time watching them. You're looking for, for uh, people that are behaving with or doing something that, that piques your interest. It's something that goes above or below the uh, the baseline. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to wait. You always have to wait for clusters of activity, right? So, you know, you're in a crowded room and a guy pulls a gun out. That's that's uh, That's cluster enough for me, you know? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes all it takes is one anomaly, right? Just one spike to go above or below that baseline, and that's all you need. You don't have to stick around and and, and wait for more, right? And it stands to reason that if sometimes one is enough, sometimes two might be enough. But I think what you're going to find too, as we go through this stuff tonight, is there's a lot of stuff that comes in threes. So always try to think of there's three clusters that you're looking for, dominant versus submissive, comfortable versus uncomfortable, interested versus uninterested, and that you're always trying to find clusters of three. And that's stuff that goes above and below the the, uh, baseline. So wouldn't it be nice if we had a system, I mean like a checklist that we could go through every time and, and just check these things off? Well, there kind of is, and we're going to do it uh, 
essentially by looking at that person from their feet up. That's what we're going to do. Because remember, we already talked about facial expressions are the least uh, reliable indicator that we can have. So we're, we're going to look at it last. We're going to start down at the feet. And we're going to start with the first cluster. The first cluster is dominant versus submissive. And a dominant cluster is an autotomic expression of the fight response. If you think about it, the human body is geared for fight or flight based on a, a stressful situation. Dominant behavior, if you think about it, is an expression of the fight response. Uh, if you look at someone's feet, they're standing with their feet shoulder width apart or maybe a little wider. They're taking up more space. One of the cues for dominant behavior is taking up more space. Yeah, so in this case, someone standing with their yeah, yeah, exactly. So if someone is standing with their feet, you know, wider apart than everybody else, that's a that's a, a dominant cluster. If they're seated with their legs crossed, that's a dominant cluster. Uh, standing akimbo, right, with their hands on your on your hips. Probably seen that from your mom a couple times. What does that mean? Yeah, that's, that's some serious dominance there, right? That's when you're coming yep. home late and mom has her has her hands on her hips and she's giving you the look. So hands on yep. hips, yeah, it's taking up more space, isn't it? You're you're you're, kind yeah, of you're, you're claiming, out. you know, you're claiming your space. You're like you're planting the flag. You're claiming that space. I'm here. I'm claiming yep. this. I'm I'm the dominant one. Yep. And like I say, this is stuff that's intrinsic. You know this. You know, just having grown up and uh, seen that look from mom. So um, if they're Seated. Think about this this guy. He's he's seated at the table with everybody else, but he's leaning back with his hands clasped behind his head. That's a dominant cluster. He's taking up more space, isn't he? He's he's staking that he owns the room. Essentially, he owns the room. Um, conversely, if they're leaning forward aggressively, and, and you've seen guys do this where they kind of puff themselves out, lean forward and kind of puff themselves out to look bigger. Taking up more space. Uh, what, what's one of the first responses you have uh, as a Most fight? Most are going to lean back. Or, you know, you're going to protect your neck too, right? You're going to raise your right. shoulders and kind of protect your neck. And you've seen guys that are getting ready to fight too. They'll thrust their chin out, you know, clinch their jaws, that kind of thing. Um, and, and so you see, what we've done here is we work from the feet up. So try to get in that habit. When you see somebody that's standing out, somebody who's above or below the, the baseline, start with the feet. Work your way up. Another thing while we're up there, now we're going above the chin, right, is someone who maintains their gaze for just a little bit longer than is necessary or somebody that doesn't break their gaze off, right? They're looking at you. They're staring at you. And when you look at them, everybody understands there's a there's like a secret socially acceptable amount of time that you can look somebody in the eye that you don't know. Right. And everybody knows what that time is. Just intrinsically you know what that is. When you break your when you break your gaze away from that person and they keep staring at you, that's a dominant cluster. And then just like you said a while ago, somebody who invades your personal space, they they get right up in your face, they take your, your personal space, that's exactly what they're doing. They're taking your personal space. What about if they touch someone? It's the same thing. They've invaded that person's personal space, and they're touching someone to demonstrate their dominance you know, over that person. So these are all things that you should be able to notice in, 
in the dominant cl- in the dominant cluster that will pique your interest because they go just just spike just a little bit above the uh, baseline. Something that you should notice. What about the submissive cluster? The opposite of the dominant cluster, right? So the dominant cluster was an expression of fight. Submissive cluster is an absence to a fight response. It's actually probably preparing for flight, right? Um, and it's the opposite. If you think about it, let's start down to the feet again. Feet close together. Why? Because you're taking up less space, right? You don't want to get out there in somebody else's space. Seated with your feet tucked underneath the chair. You ever see somebody do that? Some people mm-hmm. even um, go so far as to wrap their their leg around the leg of the chair, you know, and, and hold it with their foot, that kind of thing. So that's an extreme right. sign of, of uh, submissiveness. Um, as long as as long as it's a sign, as long as it's uh, as long as it's part of a cluster. Right. It, it has to look for three. Right. Just like we were talking about, look for three things that will demonstrate that. Um, you know, just a minute ago, you talked about approaching somebody with your wrists exposed, your palms exposed. Think about when somebody's pleading with you. It's how how vulnerable they are. Right. Because you you've exposed your wrists to them, your palms. Um, your, your arms are out there where you can't you can't hit them because your arms are already extended. That's a sign of a, a submissive a submissive cluster. You also drop your shoulders when you do that, right? You sort of mm-hmm. like we were talking about earlier the dog the dog that will kind of roll over and expose his belly. Somebody who drops their shoulders and exposes their neck, it's the exact same thing. You're you're right. just submitting to the dominant dogs, as it were. And then right on up to the face, the person who uh, averts their eyes. The dominant person stared at them, and they averted their eyes. That's a submissive move. And I, I was watching this stuff at the airport a while back, and I just decided to watch for for these dominant and submissive clusters. And it's kind of fun. Um, I was watching one particular two two guys, and I could see them coming down the concourse, and I could tell the dominant who the dominant guy was because he was just loud taking up a lot of space, and the other guy was walking about a half a step behind, and you could tell he didn't want to be there. He, it's like, i got to travel with this guy. i got to be on an airplane yeah. with this guy. But you could tell he didn't want to be there. And it's very obvious who was dominant, who was submissive in that particular, you know, that particular couple of guys there. So that's dominant and submissive. Let's move to the, uh, the second cluster. And, again, looking for three things, right, three clusters. The second one is the uncomfortable, comfortable. So in a given situation, is somebody comfortable or uncomfortable? The uncomfortable cluster means a person is threatened, right? They're nervous. They're scared. This is also um, part of the, the flight response, right, the, the don't-want-to-be-there response. And what you'll see in their behavior is a, what they call distancing behavior. They tend to put barriers between them and what's making them uncomfortable. And they also have pacifying behavior. And by pacifying, I don't mean they're trying to pacify the dominant person. They're trying to pacify, you know, someone else. It's self-pacification. In other words, if I'm uncomfortable, you ever see anybody who's uncomfortable rub their neck or rub their face or if they're sitting, they'll rub their thigh or, or, you know, rub their hands and that kind of thing. This is uh, what they call pacification or pacifying behavior. You're trying to uh, comfort yourself is what that is. And again, if we start at their feet and work up and look for uncomfortable signs, um, someone who's 
feet are bouncing, right? This, they've got that foot going, tapping, bouncing, preparing to fly, right? Prefer, preparing to get the heck out of there. You can also look at the orientation of the feet, which way their feet are pointing. Um, because people who don't want to be there typically already have their feet pointed the way they want to go. If they have their feet pointed toward an exit, toward a door or something, you can almost positively predict that if something escalates, they're going to that door because they're already pointed, they're pointing their feet that way. Um, if they're seated, cross their legs. Part of that is protecting your vitals. Um, they'll lean away rather than into you know, a conversation or, or, or um, a group setting because they don't want to be there. They have their arms crossed across their chest or their hands crossed across their belly. This is protecting your vitals, right? Again, just, these are all autonomic responses, things that they, they don't really think about. They're just doing them automatically. Uh, and again, shoulders raised, trying to protect your neck. Um, shoulders are pretty indicative of a lot of things, whether you're wanting to fight or flee. Um, and again, increasing their, their pacifying behavior. Um, and, and all that is, this pacifying behavior, is uh, the body seeks equilibrium. It wants to be in a, in a relaxed, um, unstressed state. And when your body is stressed, it tries to do things to alleviate that stress. So if they're bouncing their foot or their knee, they're just burning that energy. They're burning that extra energy to try to alleviate that stress. Another autonomic response, something that they really don't think about. They're not really controlling it. Um, that's the uncomfortable cluster. What about the comfortable cluster? Comfortable, if you think about it, it's neither fight or flight. It's just comfortable, right? You're, you're okay where you are and with the people that you're, that you're with. Um, feet, they're not going to be moving. You're just relaxed. Seated, your legs are probably going to be uncrossed. Your inner thigh will probably be exposed. And what's so big about that? Well, your primitive brain wants to protect your femoral artery. If, the, if you're exposing that to somebody else, um, then you're comfortable with that person. And uh, your torso, if you're upright or leaning into the conversation, you're interested in it, you're relaxed. Or if you're reclining or lounging, you know, then you're relaxed, you're comfortable. Arms open, arms behind the back, shoulders, where would your shoulders be if you're comfortable? You're lowered, you're relaxed, and you're not pacifying yourself by touching your thigh or your face or anything like that. It's just comfortable. Those are pretty easy to pick out. Of the three clusters that we look for is the interested or uninterested cluster. Now, this is the guiding principle for trying to figure out where a person's interest lies is where their attention is focused. And this is, a, this is a big one. If you think about the Boston bomber, this guy saw what's everybody in the crowd doing. They're yelling and cheering on the runners and, and you know, they're all happy and everything. The bomber, he said, moved with a purpose. He wasn't staying in one place. He, he had no interest in the runners. So, his interest was somewhere else. There's a clue. If we use the same technique that we did before, we start at the feet and work our way up. An interested person, someone that's laying an interesting, an interested cluster, uh, 
their feet are going to point at what they're interested in, and they're going to remain still. They're not going to be bouncing around or nervous or anything like that. They're not going to have any kind of leg barriers. In other words, they're not going to cross their legs or, or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> their torso will be leaning into that point of interest. They have an open body language, and they're looking at the point of interest. Um, you'll notice three guys standing around looking under the hood of a truck, right? What are they interested in? The motor. Where are they looking? The motor. Their feet are pointed at the motor. They're leaning into the motor. And you don't even have to hear what they're saying. You can watch them because they point and they nod. You know exactly where their point of interest is. And the other thing is they mimic each other. Anytime there's, there's more than one person involved, they mimic one another. So in this case, the three guys are pointing, nodding. They're interested in that motor. Conversely, the uninterested cluster, you don't want to be there. person doesn't want to be there if they're, if they're uninterested. Feet are bouncing, shuffling, nervous, maybe rocking back and forth, that kind of thing. Your feet are not oriented away. Motor. Yeah, not looking at the motor. Uh, your feet would be oriented away from the motor, right, or the person mm-hmm. or the threat or whatever you don't want to be near. Your feet are going to be pointing toward that, that exit that you want to make, right? toward the way that you would right. like to go. Uh, legs might be crossed. Anytime legs are crossed, that's typically a barrier of some kind. Arm barriers are up. What do you mean by arm barriers? Well, got your arms crossed in front of your chest, you know, over your over your belly, something like that. Uh, leaning away. Everybody else is leaning into the motor. This guy's leaning away from the motor, right? And we're using these, these examples. <laughs> They're non-threatening, but you, 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 get, the, you get the point. Um, also increased pacifying behavior. It, somebody who's rubbing their hands, they're rubbing their thigh, rubbing their neck, touching their face, that kind of thing. Pacification. They're, pass, they're, they're burning off that excess energy, trying to return to a, a level of, um, of comfort. So the three biggies that we're looking for then are going to be dominant versus submissive uncomfortable versus comfortable, interested versus uninterested. And those are the three clusters that we're looking for. And you try to find those three clusters. Every example, anything that piques your interest that goes above or below that baseline, look for those three clusters. And above all, we're talking about looking from hands, you know, legs, torso, that kind of thing. Above all, remember that hands kill. It's the hands that do the dirty work. It's the hands that kill. Because hands betray where a person's attention is. And this is one thing if you watch um, a lot of videos like security security footage and that kind of thing from attacks. And, and I've seen a lot with um, uh, attacks on police especially. Um, if, if somebody is concealing a weapon – they touch that weapon. They tap that weapon. They want to make sure it's still there. They want to make sure that they know exactly where it is. They want to make sure it stays hidden. And so anytime somebody, if their hands are patting something or they continue to go back and touch the same place, pretty good chance they're concealing something there, maybe a weapon. So always something to look out for. And then in addition to those clusters, um, there's a couple of, well, two or three other things that we that we can 
pick up on. The first one is kinetic slips, kinetic being movement, kinetic slips. This is like a Freudian slip, only it's, you know, it's uh, physical, not verbal. Uh, a kinetic slip is when nonverbal behavior betrays verbal, okay? So somebody's shaking their head no when they're saying yes verbally, which one is the truth? Always go with the physical because people can lie. But, right. again, we go back to people People don't multitask well. And under stress, especially, they don't must multitask well. So if you see a slip of that kind where um, we use one in our classes where, where Kim will say, so, Rick, uh, how things go at work today? I'll cross my arms, roll my eyes, and go, just great. It was wonderful. Well, my word said it was great and wonderful. What did my body say? My body said it, it wasn't so great and wonderful. Something something went wrong today. Something was not good today. So which one do you believe? Yeah, you always believe the, the physical uh, behavior over the verbal. So that's called a kinetic, right. well, a kinetic slip. Right, and you, I mean, uh, everybody's seen this before because, uh, good grief, I mean, if you're, <laughs> if you're married, you, you see it all the time because uh, <laughs> <laughs> something well, happens or whatever, and you ask your your buddy who uh, what's wrong, or and they say nothing, but uh, but you know that something is going on because uh, because of the indicators. I mean, that all yeah. All men and women experience that. Yeah. It's um, it's sort of a physical version of sarcasm is the way I look at it. You know, sarcasm, that's, that's exactly what sarcasm is. It's indicating something when the opposite is true, right? And, and that's all this is. Somebody slipped up and made a physical manifestation of what, what the truth was rather than what, what they're saying. It works really good with politicians, I guess. Um, no one would be what we call yeah, but, but the politicians are the ones that you were talking about earlier that uh, that are uh, experts at, uh, <laughs> at lying and player. smiling. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but I think you also yeah. mentioned. Did you mention it, or are you getting ready to mention about the eye blinking? Oh yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get into that when we get into the next. Uh, okay. Right. The next into the biometrics. Yeah, the biometrics right. are very interesting. Yeah. But smuggling behavior is it's behavior that indicates somebody's trying to hide something, right? So they're not necessarily smuggling, but the, the, they use the terminology smuggling behavior because some, somebody's trying to hide something. And, and you've all seen it, somebody who's um, physically trying to hide something. You walk up to them, and they suddenly they, they realize that you're there, you know, and they, they, they move really, really fast because they're trying to hide something. That's called smuggling behavior. The other one is we want to talk about is called um, acting naturally. People only this is the thing people only act naturally when they're naturally doing something. If they're not naturally doing it, then they're acting right. So they will try to act naturally, and typically their kinetic, their movement, their body language gives them away. All you have to do is be attuned to it, and you'll see it. Um, for instance, you're shopping, and somebody is in the same store you are every time, and they act like they're shopping, 
but you can tell they're not, right? They're, they're like they're talking on a cell phone, but they're really just watching you. You, you can you can tell because of the way they move, acting naturally. They're not they're not doing this naturally. It's an right. act. So those those are things you may want to be looking for too. And as I said, most of this stuff is sort of intrinsic. You sort of know it. Uh, it's a, it's good to bring it up, talk about it, quantify it, and and run it back through your brain and refresh it. I think is what we're doing mostly with this. But right, and you're, you're absolutely right. Is that is that most people they uh, on as you're discussing these, most people are are probably sitting at home. They're not in their head going, "That's right, that's right." I've noticed that, or I've seen that. But yeah, and, and you can and come they, up with they, an example. Intrinsically, they know it, but now they need to put these things together and and use the uh, the clusters that they all are aware of. But put those things together into the clusters so that they can make decisions based on those uh, observations. Exactly. And you can come up with an exact example in your life. Almost everything that we've talked about, you're like, yeah, I remember this time that so-and-so did this and he said that. And and you sort of knew it intrinsically, but now we've, we've talked about it, we've quantified it. We're coming up with a system that we can use to 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 uh, interpret this sort of thing, right? Um if we wanted to summarize the first block, right, we're talking about the six domains, the six domains of human behavior. And the first one we've just spent the last few minutes talking about is kinesics or movement or body language. If we wanted to summarize it, one thing to remember is that before a person can act, they have to decide what they're going to do. And when they decide what they're going to do, their, their brain begins to prepare their body to do that even though they're not doing it yet. And that's where you pick up the telegraph signals, right? That's when they start telegraphing what they're going to do ahead of time. People can't act until they decide to act first. And their movement, their body language, will let you know what they're about to do. When you get ready to to run or you get ready to jump and you take that that slight little little dip in your body, the slight little... The bright little crouch. Yep, you call the spring, yeah. Right. Yeah. Or you dig in, you know, you sort of dig in with one foot. Those little things right. that you just you just know. But if we want to summarize it, we're talking about kinesics, the, the, the body language and movement. Remember that a single gesture is not enough. You try to look for clusters of three. Okay. Um however that being said, sometimes one indication is enough, right? Uh, you're in a crowded room and somebody pulls a gun out and starts shooting. That's that's all the cluster I need right there. I'm, I'm headed for the door. I don't have to wait around for two more. But try to find three, and that, that way you back yourself up and you prove to yourself that this is an anomaly. So build this baseline and look for the anomaly. So a single gesture is not enough. Try to find three. Remember that when you're looking for these clusters – Try to concentrate below the shoulders and try to come up with a systematic approach. In other words, look at feet, legs, hips, torso, arms, hands, and last, facial. And if you do it that way, after a while you get really good at it. You get good and fast. Another thing is look for honest signals. Remember that we talked about earlier the honest signals or the autonomic responses to stress. These are things that you can't control. 
when people do these things, they're honest. They can't control them, and that's an honest trait. Look for right, and the three clusters. Go ahead. I was just going to say that just a, just a second ago, when you mentioned uh, the uh, the things all in a line uh, are looking at the person from the feet to the to the face, the uh, the actual time it takes to do that is just a fraction of the time it took you to say that. Once you learn, once you start oh, yeah. doing it. You're not. You're not yeah. saying it doesn't take you the amount of time that it takes to say the sentence, which is look at the the uh, the feet, knees, hips, uh, you know, stomach, shoulders, face. It takes you a, just a very small fraction of that time. Once you get used to doing it, you can do it very quickly. It's, it's at a glance to look at that. Right. I don't want people to think that that they've got to that it's got to be a break. You just got to practice doing it. Right, and it's a very it's a very fast thing. You you don't have to look and go, okay, now the feet are pointed over that. You don't have to do that. It's just a, like that. You've got it. You know it. You see it. It's intrinsic. Um, and don't don't hang up uh, on on things. I mean, like my wife would be maybe hung up. That is the sweetest set of pumps I've ever seen. Don't hang up there. <laughs> Keep moving. Oh, I'm going to hurt for that one. Um, yep. <laughs> The three clusters that we talked about. The first one is dominant versus submissive behavior, right? Everything is based on behavior. Dominant versus submissive. The second cluster is uncomfortable versus comfortable. The third cluster is interested versus uninterested. And making sure that those things fit the baseline. If they don't fit the baseline, there's an anomaly, right? And then the three things that we talked about last, kinetic slips, which are saying one thing but your body indicates something else what do you go with you always go with the behavior you go with the body the second thing is smuggling behavior somebody acting like they're trying to hide something and then last acting naturally because like we said people only act naturally when they're not acting when it's natural when they're naturally doing right. the thing it looks natural and if they're not then it's kind of ratchety it's not smooth Anything to add to that before we move on from kinesics? No, but uh, the the I want people to understand that uh, that they're getting a lot of information. Just like you said, they you're, they're getting a lot of information, and they should be uh, they should be taking notes. But at the same time, I don't want uh, I don't want folks to think that that this is going to be a really daunting thing uh, because once you start practicing it and you uh, you you start putting these things together in a practice situation, and you can do that anywhere. Like you said, you went to the airport, you did it. You can do it anywhere. You can take a, start taking a look at people, see how they're acting, and uh, and start categorizing it, stuff like that. But this... This isn't something that you're going to have to take uh, – that you're going to have to spend a lot of time doing it. You should be able to to work with yourself so that you're doing it at a glance. Exactly. Yep. And practice makes you better and faster at it. Um, I know in the in the, the Marine Corps um, Combat Hunter course, you, you know where they go? Starbucks. 
because you can fit in, right? You sit back there at a table with a cup of coffee. Nobody knows you're there. Nobody knows they're being observed, and you're able to observe all this human behavior, you know, all this interaction, which I thought was right. pretty cool. I think, a, uh, you know, a mall, an airport, school, all of these places, they're great for that. Okay. Why don't we move on to biometrics? Biometrics are kind of cool. Biometrics are... Um, uncontrollable, observable responses that are caused by emotional changes. So it's an autonomic response. Your brain makes you do it. There's nothing you can can do to stop it, and they're observable. When it happens, I can see it on you, right? We can use these uh, biometric cues to read the emotions of people and identify who's going through some sort of emotional stress, and that's very important. And when we when we mean stress, it's not necessarily a bad thing. There's good stress as well. Things that are things that are going on. Um, and what do people do when the publisher's clearinghouse rings the doorbell and they come to the door and they've got the <laughs> giant check for you know nine million dollars? What do they do? They there's all sorts of autonomic responses immediately. You know, their eyes get big, their mouth moves open. You know, and they can't help it. That's it's automatic, and we can observe them. And these are. The honest signals that we talked about way back in the beginning, things that they're absolutely honest. They cannot be faked. Um, emotions drive your responses to, to stress, um, both good and bad. We typically are going to be more concerned with bad responses. And some of the dangerous ones are anger, fear, contempt, things like that. And um, most of the time, the body's response to these these things are uncontrolled, automatic things, and we can we can perceive these. You ever been? You ever had somebody look at you with contempt? That's there's no there's no mistaking that, you know, or anger, right. or fear. There's no mistaking that. It's an autonomic response, and we can we can pick it out. Nice thing about it is we don't have to be right there to pick it out either, right? We can be across the room. To pick it out, um, we're going to use the same format that we did before. In other words, the same structure. We're going to start at the feet and work our way up. Um, if somebody is displaying anger, fear, contempt, one of those things, what, what will their feet be doing? They may be shifting from one foot to the other, right? Moving, maybe bouncing their feet if they're seated. Here, see somebody sitting there and they're just sort of. They got that foot going, right? They're just bouncing that foot, and right. you combine it with a few with a few other uh, biometric clues, and you can go, oh, they're angry, right? Or oh, they're scared. Um, shaking or bouncing the legs, same thing when you're seated. Um, the torso, if you notice rapid breathing, that's one of those things that when you're under stress, it boosts your your respiration and your pulse, right? You're preparing for fight or flight. It's not something you can help. It's an autonomic response. Your brain's just doing it. So you may notice an increase in uh, uh, the rate of breathing. You may notice all of a sudden perspiration. That would be a definite giveaway, right, from the baseline if everybody's cool, calm, and collectible and this guy's sweating like a pig. Right. right. How many times have you seen, um, I think about cases like in the Middle East where a suicide bomber walks into a place and people said, I knew something was wrong because he was sweating profusely. What about the um, hijackers on 
that was one of the things people said was these guys were sweating profusely, um, shaking, shivering, muscle tremors. Why is that? Your body's getting ready for fight or flight, and it starts putting that that dose of adrenaline in, and your muscles start, you know, shaking and shivering and tremoring. <clears throat> what about fidgeting or nervous behavior? You know, that's a dead giveaway. Something's not right. It goes above or below that baseline. Um, the face. <laughs> you ever heard somebody somebody getting red in the face? Yeah, they're mad, right? You sometimes they actually have like veins pop out in their forehead, and you can see their pulse, maybe in their neck. That's that's extreme uh, anger, right? Um, again, in their face, in, increased respiration, sweating, muscle tension, dry mouth. There's one for you. People are licking their lips because their mouth is so dry. You ever been in a situation where you, you you got dry mouth so bad, just like instantly there was that much stress? I have. Um, the other one was um, if you're close enough to see their eye, pupils will either get really small or really big. That's that's also an autonomic response to stress, right? That your eyes, may, your pupils may get wide open because you're getting ready to flee. You can't help it. And then the other one is eye blinking. People typically blink 12 to 15 times a minute. In uh, this one particular example that I was reading about, uh, that typical blink rate of 12 to 15 blinks per minute while under questioning, uh, Bill Clinton was being asked questions about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. His blink rate was three to four times that. You think there was some stress there? Yeah. So someone blinking a lot more than they should is going well above or well below the baseline, right? You should know what the baseline is. Um, people also have little little actions that they'll do to mask, hide, or comfort themselves. Masking stuff, hiding stuff, is something we can see. We don't have to be close to see that. Um, how come um, our soldiers... A lot of a lot of them, when they're on patrol in a little town in Afghanistan, why do they wear sunglasses? They wear those those sunglasses that you can't see through. Why do they do that? Well, it's bright sunshine, right? Yeah, that's one reason. But the other reason is because they don't want people to see who or what they're looking at. They're, they're hiding. They're masking who and what they're looking at. So conversely, in a situation where nobody's wearing sunglasses – Somebody suddenly appears wearing sunglasses, that becomes an anomaly, right? That goes well above or below the baseline. And right. you, you can take that one action and pair a couple of other clusters of behavior with it, and you might decide that they're wearing sunglasses because they're masking or hiding something. They don't want you to see what they're looking at. But that one single action really doesn't tell you anything, right? It's a You may have some suspicions, but you really need to group it with a couple of other clusters to prove it. Another one is um, clothes that don't fit the environment. That's a big one, pretty easy to pick out. Somebody who's um, dressed too heavily, especially, is typically hiding something. It may be a weapon. You know, you don't know, but the baseline says that everybody ought to be wearing shorts and T-shirts, and this guy's got a big heavy coat on. That's a big spike above the, the baseline. Um, the uh, 
comforting actions. Remember we talked earlier about pacifying activity, rubbing your neck, rubbing your face, your thigh, your chest. Um, you'll actually see, sometimes you'll see somebody breathing deeply to try to calm themselves down um, before they do something. And I've seen this in some of the, uh, like the security videos and things that I've watched where somebody's getting ready to do something and they have to kind of work themselves up to it. And you'll see them standing there taking deep breaths. Does that fit the baseline? No, nobody else is doing that. So there's a cluster for you right there. Try to find out. It it piques your interest because it goes above or below the uh, baseline. If we're going to sum it up, we've talked about kinetics, right? Body, language, movement. And we've come up with a systematic way to look at people from the feet up and and try to figure out uh, the three clusters, whether they're dominant or or submissive, whether they're interested or uninterested, whether they're comfortable or uncomfortable. If we wanted to sum up the biometrics, biometrics are basically uh, clusters of behavior that they can't help it, right? Their autonomic things, their reactions to stress that they can't help, but we can observe. Um, you can look for facial cues such as um, reddening or pa- we didn't talk about paling, but suppose somebody goes white all of a sudden and nobody else is going white. That's a clue. Uh, pupil dilation, constriction, blinking, dry mouth, all of these things, biometric clues that we can observe that is an emotion that's their emotional response to a stress that they can't help and that we can observe. Anything to add to that? Nope. That uh, uh, I think that that is uh, well. No, just go ahead. And let's keep moving on because I know there's still a bunch more to uh, to cover. Oh, well, there's lots, lots more. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've talked about kinetics. We talked about kinetics, which is movement, body language. We talked about biometrics, and the biometrics are the things that people, how they react to stress physically that we can see. Now we're going to talk about proxemics or proxemics. Proxemics is just what it sounds like. It's proximity, right? Proxemics is the way humans use space. It's spatial interaction. It's a a distance that identifies a relationship or an intent, okay? And this this can involve distance and it can involve movement. So we're going to look at distance and movement under the banner of proxemics. That's what we're going to call the study of this distance and movement. Here's, here's just the facts. Humans move toward that which they are attracted to or feel safe with and away from that which they fear. And everybody can agree to that. That's just how right. we are. Um, another fact, the closer two people are to one another, the more comfortable they are with one another. People who know each other will stand close together People who don't know each other will stand a little further apart. And we can use that distance, those proxemics, to figure out relationships and to figure out intent. So let's talk about distance to begin with. We can divide proxemics or distance into four different zones. And the first one is the intimate zone. The second is the personal zone. The third is social and fourth is public. But for our purposes, we're going to treat social and public as the same. 
because they're 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 essentially the same for for our intents and purposes. Let's talk about the right. first one. The first one is the the intimate zone. The intimate zone is the zone closest to your body. It's where you're most vulnerable. It's within an arm's reach. And if you think about it, who do you allow within arm's reach? Only your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your children, that kind of thing. Even your best friend kind of stays right about arm's length. There's a there's an invisible bubble there, right? So that's your we call it personal space. That's your personal space. And anybody um who penetrates that zone, that personal space is probably attempting to show dominance, aren't they? Um, one thing about people is people not only want you to stay out of their little intimate zone, but they don't want to penetrate somebody else's intimate zone. So there's a baseline for you, right? Somebody who does penetrate your personal zone immediately goes above or below that baseline. That's not normal. Um, anybody whose zone has been penetrated, they display like barriers. They may put a hand up, an arm up. Um, then you may get nervous and start rubbing, you know, rub your neck or your face or something. Uh, you may blush. That's a biometric, right? Blushing is an autonomic response. You can't help it. That's an emotional response to a stress. You may start blushing. Um, you may move away, right, to try to establish that proper separation uh, that you have. Um, one of the... Um, one of the examples they gave was uh, a soldier in Japan talking to a local, and the the Japanese guy would step into his intimate zone to try to engage him in conversation, and the soldier would just keep backing up. It's a cultural thing. They right. their person their intimate zone is much 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 closer, you know, than than ours is, and and so it was just kind of a cultural thing. The guy, you know, two different cultures clashing there on that, but. Everybody knows where their intimate zone is, and everybody doesn't want somebody to penetrate that, nor do you want to penetrate somebody else's. So that's the baseline for uh, the intimate zone. The next one is the personal. Personal distance is arm's length, arm's length or a little bit more. Who do, you, who do you let there? Pretty much everybody else, right? In your day-to-day activities, people can come up to just about arm's length and, you know, your spidey senses don't go off until they come inside that. So your day-to-day um, activities with people that you don't know, people that you do know, your friends, that kind of thing, they're probably going to be uh, just at about that distance. Um, anytime a stranger, somebody penetrates your zone, your personal zone or your intimate zone, go back to the, the, the kinetic cluster of interested or uninterested to tell if they're a threat. And you do this intrinsically, right? If somebody penetrates your zone, if somebody steps into your zone and makes you uncomfortable, what's the first thing you do? You look to see if their focus is on you or their focus is somewhere else. It could be that their focus was somewhere else and they stumbled into your personal zone, something that's forgivable. However, if they penetrate your, your personal zone and it's obvious that their focus is on you, then that's a threat. And that's well above or below the baseline, and it should get your attention. I used to have a um, vice president for the company that I worked for who was terrible about this, and it was a pure dominance thing. He would walk up to you and get right in your face just to see what you would do. And 
I was a young guy, and I would, sure, I would blush, you know, the autonomic responses, that kind of thing. I would typically take a step back, and he would just keep doing that. And I finally learned to stand my ground, so to speak, that when he got well within my intimate zone, that my response was to lean into him and, and not let him dominate me. So that's a sort of a, you know, company tactical thing, I guess. It doesn't really have anything to do with strangers, just just a, an example, so to speak. Um, anybody that's that close, if you're observing people and they're that close, you should be able to tell the relationship between those people. Do they shake hands? If they shake hands, that's okay, right? You, you see them shake hands. So that means, okay, they've allowed each other to, to penetrate that that personal zone and that's okay what if they nod make eye contact that kind of thing that's a good thing too right um if they face one another we started at the feet remember you look at them and their feet are pointing toward each other where where does where does their interest lie it it lies in each other and so they've established a relationship there and it's okay to penetrate that that uh, personal zone um Conversely, two people, one penetrating the other's zone, that sort of thing, and you do not get those indications. There's no nod, no eye contact. Uh, their feet aren't pointing at each other. There's no handshake. There's none of that. There's no indication of a positive relationship, right? That means these two are not comfortable being that close together. There's some avoidance going on. This is all just plain basic human behavior psychology, right? Right. Right, but it's stuff that we have to pick up on and, and understand. And the good thing about this stuff is, you can observe this, you know, on one side of the mall while somebody else is on the other side of the mall. You don't have to be up close to to see facial expressions or anything like that. You can you can divine people's intentions while you maintain a safe distance, and that's the whole um, the whole the whole the whole what am I trying to say? Goal here that we're trying to do. Right. And then um, the last distance, we talked about intimate, that's inside arm's length, personal, which is arm's length or a little bit beyond. The last two we lumped together, social and public. That's the distance that we prefer to keep strangers, right, beyond arm's length out there. Um, it indicates the same relationship, right, social and public, both of those zones, it indicate the same relationship, no relationship. There is none. So people that stay outside of that, we have no relationship with or two people who are that far apart that we're observing. They have no relationship. This is, you think about it in a primitive way, this is our safety zone, right? If we keep somebody at least that distance away, we feel safer. So we consider that to be our safety zone. Right. Anybody that gets inside of that, your spidey senses go off, right? You start thinking, hey, what's this guy doing? And what's the first thing you do then? You look for intent. And intent is where that person's focus is, what are they looking at, where are their feet pointing, what are their hands doing, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of people and, interact. And this isn't, you're, and this isn't uh, an isolated thing. This isn't where you have to, uh, where you have to wait until they're within uh, your personal space to try and determine it. I mean, you, you're, uh, hopefully, you have been, uh, 
aware enough that you are adding up all of the things that are coming until they uh, appear in your personal space like that, and then you can determine intent, uh, not just with what they're what they're doing exactly at that at that moment, but with all of the things that have occurred as that moment approached. So right. So I mean, t- let's take for instance d- d- just what you just said. Somebody that you've noticed at a distance. Let's just look at the two things that we've already talked about: kinesics and and biometrics. Right? Kinesics is the way the guy's moving. It's it's pretty simple. If you watched, um, I don't know, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom or anything like that, watch the nature shows. An animal that is stalking prey moves entirely different than the prey moves. It moves entirely different Absolutely. Than, than, the, than the, the predator moves when he's just bopping along. It's a completely different movement. And you know this, and you can you can tell the way someone's moving. It's pure kinesics. It's the, their body language, the way they're moving. You can also notice the biometrics, right? You notice where they're looking, what where they're looking at. Are the, are yeah, listen, I, I do that with uh, <laughs> when I'm working cattle and stuff like that. You know, cattle are uh, are prey animals. You know, they've got the they've got the eyes wide set on their head, so they can see both in front and behind them, and they are very very uh, sensitive to to being looked at. Like if I'm if I want to go after a specific animal, uh, or if I want to move around into position where I can get to, to a certain animal or something, I can't be staring at them and walking toward them because they'll see me looking at them. They see my eyes looking at them, and they get uh, they start getting freaked out. So a lot of times, what I have yeah. to do is I don't look at them. I look the other way. Uh, you know, I keep them in my vision uh, peripherally, but I'll I'll have to move uh, without looking right at them. If I look at the animals, they get uh, tweaked. They'll start getting nervous, and they'll take off or whatever. So I'll have to I'll have to to move without pointing myself at them and without looking at them in order to uh, to get into a position I need to be in. Exactly. And the thing is, you just got to be smarter than the cow, right? <laughs> yeah, which isn't always that easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but but what I mean is you have to be smarter than the cow. You have to you, – you have to the, – the in other words, the cow doesn't question it. The cow doesn't go, right. hey, I think that guy's looking at me. Nah, he's probably not looking at me. Or hey, I think that guy's—he seems to be moving toward me, you know, like he's like he's stalking me. Nah, yeah. you know, he's probably not. Cows don't do that. Cows flip nope. the switch. That guy's looking at me. That guy's stalking me. It's that simple. People yep. are the only animals that do that. <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah, that goes back to listening to your gut, right? It goes back to listening to your to your to that little voice inside you that's going, something's not right here, and. The thing is, you've, it's a it's a primitive thing that we have trained out of ourselves. Hopefully, eventually, we'll get around to talking about another book that's really really good about that, and that's Gavin uh-huh. DeBecker's uh, "The Gift of Fear," and it's a huge entire book about why you should develop and listen to that gut feeling and listen to that little small voice that's going something's not right. Animals don't. Animals are so efficient. And that's one of the things I teach in, in our uh, self-defense classes is animals are efficient. They don't have to run through all the scenarios and consider the consequences and consider the legal ramifications or the social ramifications. They just act. You know, uh, 
a, a, a mama bear defending her cubs doesn't have to, you know, run through any of that in her head. She just kills you. Just, it, just, it's, very, it's very efficient. When you're trying to pick up on this stuff and you're trying to defend yourself, you have to become an efficient animal. You have to let go of all that stuff and become an efficient animal. And part of it is all this stuff that we're talking about, you perceive it and you don't discount it. Once you see these signs, you don't discount it. Right, and uh, and I certainly do. You know, I talk to uh, when I'm talking to folks all the time, and we're discussing uh, situational awareness and stuff like that. I uh, I tell them over and over that <clears throat> that we have lost a uh, uh, or we've uh, suppressed. You know, a very uh, important part of our of ourselves, and uh, that is the our ability to uh, to listen to things and see things uh, on a gut level. And I tell people, I said, trust your gut. <laughs> trust yeah. your gut. With uh, you know, if you get ready to uh, to to park your car somewhere, and uh, you know, it's at night, and you're going to park your car, and you're driving around, and and you start to park, and you go, man, something about this just doesn't seem right. And most people will just say, well, that's silly. I'm just being scared, or I'm being a wuss. And what they don't understand is that, you know, your 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 mind is working on a very complex level. While you may not realize it, when you drove past a person or two or three people, and you looked over at them, and they looked back at you, they could have been looking at you in, the, in like you were talking about, in a predatory fashion something uh, like that, or you saw somebody uh, that uh, was not where they were supposed to be, or uh, you saw something, and your 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 mind is putting it together uh, on a uh, subconscious level, telling you, hey, these are warning signs, listen up, and you're suppressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tell people, let's you're, listen you're, to your, primitive, your primitive brain, your amygdala, the primitive part of your brain, is a, is a very efficient animal brain, and you just got to listen to it. You have to become that efficient animal. But when right, we're talking about we suppressed it, now we have to go back and we have to train ourselves. You got like we're, we're talking about now. It. We train ourselves to look <laughs> for clusters. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's kind of sad, isn't it? We've we've sort of uh, <laughs> devolved, as it were. But we're talking about um, spaces here. We're talking about distances here. Um, how people interact in the space around them is an important indicator of how they're going to behave. You can you can predict behavior based on this, on, on, on how you see people interact within a certain space. Um, and this is good because we don't have to actually be up there in that space, right? We can be observing this from a distance. And that's that's the distance part that we're talking about, if we're, you know, when we're talking about the proxemics, when we're talking about distance, the distance part of it. The other, the other part of it is movement, and just like we said, predators move differently. The way they move is is a clue. Um, movement can be classified three different ways. We're going to break movement down here really quickly. Try to finish at least this part of it up. Um, movement can be classified three different ways. You got movement to, movement away, and idle movement. And then you can further break each of those down into either positive or negative movement. 
movement to something can be either friendly or hostile, right? Somebody could be stalking you for to rob you, or it could be a friend trying to pick you out of a crowd. Movement two. Movement away can be evasion or flight, trying to get away from something, or it could just be movement from one thing toward another, right, with no negative intent. You're just moving from one something of interest to one other something of interest. Idle movement could be sitting around killing time. You've seen this, I'm sure, at the mall where the guys are there long done shopping and they're just standing around waiting for the life. That's idle movement, right? But there's a difference between idle movement and surveillance, right? right. Idle movement looks pretty natural. Surveillance doesn't because they're they're multitasking. They're, they're trying to act naturally while they surveil, while they observe you, right? Practice picking up um, on proxemics by just casually observing other people in ordinary settings. You, you go out to a mall, anywhere like that. As you walk through there, you're gonna you're gonna notice people moving in all directions. None are paying any particular attention to you, and that's good. None are invading your personal space, and that's good. Um, you can deduce that they're not a threat to you. Where a threat comes in is if the movement becomes um, intercepting. In other words, they aren't moving away from you in any way. They're actually moving toward you. So you're picking up on movement, in this case, and distance. If they're closing the distance and the movement appears to be, uh, for lack of a better term, a collision course, then that becomes a threat. Everybody else, the baseline is people moving away from you are moving at random. This, this particular movement and this particular closing of the distance goes well above or below that baseline. What is the, what is the difference, though? The difference between this random movement and this movement that looks like it's coming directly toward you is intent. What does this person intend to do? Right? Because somebody moving toward you isn't a threat unless they intend to do something. And that's, that's what you've got to pick up on. Um, we'll talk about proximate pushes and pulls here. People move toward things that they expect to gain pleasure from or things that they like, things that appeal to them. And people move away from things that are unappealing or things that may cause them pain. So we've already talked about that. We're going to call those proximate pulls and pushes. A proximate pull is when somebody's interested in something or they, they're looking to fulfill some kind of a need or there's some kind of a relationship exists. So, for instance, we're walking in the mall and I see you on the other side of the mall. I will, I can, I'll move toward you because I'm like, hey, there's Scott. And I'll go over there and I'll move straight toward you. Um, that is a proximic pull. It indicates there's no threat. And how can you verify that there's no threat if I'm moving toward you now? It, even if you can't see my face, you don't recognize it as me. You do, you do it through kinetics, right, the way that I'm moving, biometrics, what my body is telling you as far as my reactions to, to stresses. Um, and, and when I said stress, like I said earlier, it could be a good thing. I see you, I recognize you, I haven't seen you in six months. That's a stress. It's a good one, but it's still a stress, and I'm still going to right. act a certain way based on that. And it's stuff that you can pick up on. You can see it. I can't help it. It's a, 
It's an honest signal, right, straight from the primitive part of my brain, and you can read it. Um, if you think about uh, an example of, a, say, a drug dealer on a street, if you're looking at a street scene and there's a drug dealer on the street, um, he's continuously approached by other people. Right? They're pulled to him because he has something they want. They're seeking to fulfill a need. They're interested in this guy, right? So there is a proxemic pull to him, and he will he will be showing all kinds of signs of situational awareness, right? He's gonna he's not, he's gonna be trying to act naturally, but he's gonna be not acting naturally. He's gonna be on high alert, constantly looking around. What about the interactions with other people, right? People are gonna be constantly penetrating his personal zone, aren't they? And coming up, there's actually gonna be touching, hand hands touching exchanging of, of items and that kind of thing. So from these kinetics, from these biometrics, from this um, proxemic uh, situation that we've just seen, we can pretty much surmise that this guy's a drug dealer. Um, but what gets your attention first, the first thing probably, is the proxemic pull. All of these persons being pulled toward this same person. He stands out above and, and beyond the baseline. The baseline is people moving at random, and here's a person that has a, some sort of proximate pull. A lot of people are moving toward him. What about a negative proximate pull? Um, humans are lazy. They're efficient. And, and you think about it, predators in general and bad guys in particular operate in um, target-rich environments, so to speak. Somewhere he's got the most likely chance of success to do whatever it is that he, he wants to do. He's naturally going to be um, drawn to these places where he can get away with it. And it's, it's important that you recognize – we're going to call this a negative proxemic pull. He's, he's negatively pulled to this place or he's pulled to this place of negative activity because that's where he likes to operate. And it probably uh, behooves you to be able to pick out these – negative proximity pulls where where might there be one in other words hanging out at the mall probably not so much uh walking right. down a dark street probably so um going to your car even at the mall you know going to your car in one of those multi-level parking garage deals i never like those things you know because i'm 300 yards from the door and it's back in the dark corner and that's a negative proximity pull those bad guys are pulled; they're drawn to those locations. So it's, you're, and there again, your primitive brain is telling you, this is not good. This is not a good place to be, right? Listen to that primitive brain. It's up to us to recognize these negative proximate pulls. What about a push? A proximate push that would be the opposite of a pull. Um, it's a movement to avoid a person, place, or object. So just like. The bad guy has a, prox a negative proximate pull to go to a certain area where the street light's out and it's dark. You should have a proximate push that keeps you away from that, something that makes you want to keep your distance from that threat. You're in a crowd, and people are moving away from a particular person, right? A sudden increase in space from that person, their proximity, indicates a threat. If there's a crowd of people and all of a sudden there's a lot of screaming and a lot of people moving and they're all moving away from a certain person, 
promise you that person is the threat, right? That just that's intrinsic. You just know that, right? So a sudden increase in space indicates a threat. How about if you feel like your personal zone is being encroached upon? You feel like you're being pushed away from something. That's a proximic push. Proximics identify relationships. So pushes and pulls are going to be signs of changes in these things. Um, If everything is going right down the baseline smooth, then everything is fine. If you suddenly feel a change, something's telling you you don't need to be here or something telling you you need to be over there, you need to recognize that change all of a sudden, that proximate change as a push or a pull. Um, Let me summarize this, and we're about out of time here, so... Uh, let's summarize proxemics real quick, and then I'll try to do a real quick cap over everything, and then maybe we can take up uh, next week. Okay, um, I was going to say, uh, maybe if you have some time, uh, you can come uh, back this next week. Sure, yeah, we'll do that. Okay, all right. I would, too. Give us the, uh, the, uh, your summary, and, uh, okay. and we'll the set it up for on, next on week. Proxemics. The summary on the proxemics would be... Uh, uh, proxemics is, an, is uh, how you read the space between people and, and or people and objects. How, how do you read the space between them and what it means? Remember, there's three zones, the intimate zone, that's within arm uh, reach, and that's reserved for your closest friends, your acquaintances, your spouse, that kind of thing. Your personal zone, that's about one arm's length and a little bit beyond. That's reserved for friends and acquaintances. And beyond that is your social and public zone. And that's where you want strangers to operate, right? You want to keep them out there at a safe distance. And then we talked about proximic pulls and proximic pushes. And proximic pull is a move toward something or someone that's considered attractive, safe, or positive. A proximic push is when you feel that you need to move away from something or someone because it may be harmful or there's some sort of negative uh, associated with that. So to recap real quickly... What we've covered tonight, we talked about the six domains, and we've covered three of them so far, the kinesics, the biometric cues, and the proxemics. Kinesics are essentially body language, and we learn to look at feet, then legs, then torso, then arms and hands, and last face to try to pick up these, these uh, cues. And we learned that we needed to find three clusters before we could identify something as a danger. The three clusters that we're looking for are dominant versus submissive. We're looking for uncomfortable versus comfortable and interested versus uninterested. And if you apply those as you're looking at at a situation or people and trying to establish that baseline, it pretty quickly will uh, determine what is and what isn't right. Then we talked about, after kinesics and body language and movement, we talked about... um, Uh, biometric cues, that's reading the autonomic responses to stress, things that people can't help, they do automatically when there is a response to some sort of a stress and how to read them. And the same thing, we start at the feet and we work up. And uh, last, we just talked about proxemics, and that's distance, and that's movement. And we talked about uh, how to read how people move and what distance, uh, what you can read into distance, um, you know, between people or between people and objects. So that was a pretty good. We covered about half of it tonight, actually, and I hope we uh, hope we gave you some good stuff to think about. You can always go back and listen to the the uh, 
the podcast and you know knock the rust off in a couple of yeah. weeks. Some, some good stuff to think about. Yeah, this is a lot of stuff to think about, but at the same time, uh, that's what we want you to do. That's what we're telling this to. We want you to think about it now because if you think about it now, you start practicing, you start start getting yourself in the uh, uh, in the mode of doing this. It's this this doesn't take forever. This is at a glance stuff that you can be using every day. I want to thank uh, thank you, Rick, for coming on and uh, giving us the time tonight. We're going to do this again next yeah, week. We're going to finish this up. And I also want to let people know that uh, that I signed up for the program to uh, to monetize the show. So while you're listening to the show, be sure and click on the links uh, on the show page. Every time you click on a link, uh, the uh, sponsors uh, pay Blog Talk, and Blog Talk pays me. So make sure that you're clicking on the links while you're uh, listening to the show. All right, uh, that'll do it for tonight. We will uh, and say, listen, I want to thank CMD, uh, who's here uh, every time I'm here. And uh, we'll see you guys uh, next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central. Until then, uh, God bless and keep you all. Stay warm. <laughs>